We've come together today to celebrate this singular fact that the most pivotal moment in all of human history didn't take place in a palace or a courtroom or in the marketplace or on the battlefield. It took place in a garden. It's in a garden that we watch from our Old Testament reading. We watch humanity be born and ultimately fall away. But it's in another garden that we watch humanity through Jesus Christ be born again and resurrected to new and perishable, unconquerable, everlasting life. And so we've gathered here as a church this morning on Easter to bear witness because the man, Jesus of Nazareth, rose from a tomb in a garden, our world once hopelessly lost to the power of sin and death now lives again in Him. And while there have been many messianic figures throughout history, those who claim to be God in the flesh, riding into their cities to establish their regimes and empires, and ultimately dying either in exile or through execution, it's only been Jesus Christ that's changed the world, that's opened the future, that's been victorious over our last enemy, death, by willingly dying Himself and bodily, historically, actually, truly, really rising again to new life. While all the regimes of this world end with death, Jesus only begins there. And it culminates with His resurrection and ascension to God. So in our scripture readings today, both in Psalm, both in the Psalms and in Genesis, we're reminded that our world, our life starts with God. He alone is good. He alone exists above all other gods, lords, and kings. He alone creates the heavens and earth. He separates the land from the water. He populates the skies with stars and planets and angels and the earth with birds and fish and animals. And the pinnacle of His creation is humanity. Male and female. Man and woman upon which He stamps His own image being His icon. And He gives Adam, which means man, to Eve, which means life, and vice versa. Together, not alone, they bring glory to God. They worship His name by carefully, lovingly, peacefully ruling over His creation with wisdom and compassion and justice. And their home is this garden. And God lives with them there. Heaven and earth come together in Eden. And God tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill and steward the earth, to be priests and gardeners of God. And you know all too well the tragic outcome of this. Together, they reject God's Wisdom. Instead, they want to rule this world on their own terms, in their own power, and for their own 
glory. They eat not from the tree of life we see, but the tree of knowledge. And although God warned them of its consequences, they plunged themselves into sin and death willingly. And they open up a Pandora's box of sin's curse. They open up a way of existing that's miserable with agony, with humiliation, with suffering. And all of that finally leads to death. And so we know that they're exiled from this garden. And they wander the earth working and toiling and fighting and having no rest until the wilderness into which they've gone becomes their tomb one day. They die and there they stay. Destroyed. Decayed. Defeated. And dead. Now this is our world too, as it turns out. A world where we are born, we sin, we suffer, and finally we die. Generation after generation, family after family, some are born maybe with more money or talent or, or beauty or power or fame or success, but they also live and suffer and eventually die with no hope for anything else. And that's what makes what comes next all the more staggering to us. Now remember that last week on Palm Sunday, we saw Jesus at the peak of His popularity. He rode into Jerusalem in glory and everyone expected Him to reign in a worldly fashion. But because that didn't eventuate in the way that they had hoped, we got to Good Friday and those same people, along with the Roman government and the the Jewish courts, collaborated to put Him to death because He didn't rule in their terms, for their glory, for their power and wealth. And so they put Him to a a most shameful and excruciating death. And after hours of hanging on a cross, naked and abandoned, under torment and mockery and anguish, He dies on that God-forsaken cross and is buried. Now that would have been where anyone else's story, anybody else in human history, that would be where their story ends. But John's Gospel doesn't end on Palm Sunday in chapter 12 with Jesus' triumphal entry, nor does it end on Good Friday in chapter 19 with His horrible execution. Instead, this morning, we read that John's Gospel continues on to this new day into chapter 20 where the whole world is turned upside down because Jesus has walked out of His grave. We read on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day that God began creation, mind you. Now He begins a new kind of creation through the resurrection of His only Son. Effectively, this is no longer the first day of creation. It's the eighth day. It is a brand new day, a brand new age that has dawned because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. 
And John draws our attention to this sole, lonely figure in the garden, Mary Magdalene. You remember that she was one of Jesus' disciples. She traveled with Him on the roads through the, the, the dangers and the, the wilderness because she was so devoted to this man who loved her, who drove out the seven demons that had tormented her in her life, and she gave all that she had, every cent, to follow Him and to help Him along the way. And so here she is now in a sorrow beyond sorrow. And a grief worse than grief. She ventures out, we read, so early in the morning that it still seems like night. It's dark outside. And she comes to His tomb alone to weep. Because for Mary, all is lost. Everything that she had hoped for, everything that she had wished for, is gone. But when she gets there, it appears that something shocking has happened. The giant stone that has been rolled in front of his grave to prevent any tampering or to prevent any further worship, that stone has been rolled away and the door is wide open. If that's not scandalous, if that doesn't seem like a, 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 enough of a desecrated tomb, what she finds next is all the more shocking. In a fright, Mary runs to find Peter and John, two from his inner circle. And what does she say to them? Christ is risen? No. He's alive from the grave? No. She couldn't even begin to imagine what would happen next. And so we read, she says what any of us would have said in the same situation. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. They've hidden His body away from us. I can almost see Peter and John, their blood draining from their face. Them going white as ghosts. And so their knees begin to buckle as they stand up and, and run out of the door from where they're hiding and they're barreling towards that grave. And I find it almost humorous that John, who's too humble to mention himself by name here, still lets us know that he outruns old man Peter to the tomb. But he gets there first and he only has the courage to, to glance in. And what he sees is a strange sight. He sees these funeral clothes folded neatly in a corner. And when Peter finally huffs it up the hill behind him, he's bold enough to actually enter. That seems like Peter, doesn't it? And he finds that not only the linens have been sorted, assuring that there, this was no work of a, a, a common criminal or a grave-robbing vandal, Something different has happened here. He sees the clothes are separated where they ought to be. And finally, John, gathering his courage, goes into. And the Scripture tells us he sees it and he believes it. But this is what's interesting. What he believes, he doesn't know in full. But he believes in Jesus. Verse 9 is... I think something surprising to us. Something worth meditating on for just a moment. See, John tells us that they didn't understand 
what they were witnessing. They didn't understand that the Scriptures had been telling them all along that He would rise from the grave. They weren't making that connection yet. Somehow when Jesus told them Himself at least three times in His ministry that He would have to go and suffer and die but would rise again, they just couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't remember it. It didn't mean anything to them in the moment. And folks, I can't help but see my own reflection in this this morning. No matter what the Scriptures say to me, no matter what the Spirit testifies within me, no matter how the Father answers prayers on my behalf, so often I still cannot believe that Christ rose from the dead for me. That He overthrew sin and death for me, that His full love and full pardon are for me. And I think John, in some sense, models that inner spiritual life so well for us. He sees that Jesus has done something. He sees it. But He doesn't understand it. And yet, the Scriptures tell us, He believes it. He sees the miracle. He doesn't get it, but he believes it. Christian, perhaps that is what God is trying to tell you here today. He doesn't ask you to understand His mysterious ways. He doesn't ask you to be perfect in doctrine or practice. He just asks you to see what He's done. To believe Him and His resurrection are for you. Eventually, Peter and John leave in astonishment, not knowing what to say or do, and they seem to retreat back into hiding. But in verse 11, we read, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. What an unbelievable woman Mary Magdalene is. Someone I think so overlooked by us so often. When all others shake their head and shrug their shoulders and walk away, she just can't stop being close to Jesus. As she was crying, she stooped low like John did to look into this tomb. And through puffy red eyes, through a tear-streaked face, she sees something that Apparently, Peter and John couldn't or didn't. She sees two angels sitting in white. One where Jesus' head was. One where His feet were. And they say to her, almost nonchalantly, woman, why are you crying? Now, however they appear to her, and we know when angels appear to us in Scripture as human beings, It terrifies us. We drop to the ground like dead people. So however they appear to her, it wasn't so otherworldly that it caused terror. But what's perhaps interesting about this is it shows us that no matter what miraculous thing is happening before her, where do these two men come from? Why are they dressed this way? Why are they calm? She is not fixated on them at all. She's only concerned about Jesus. 
She says to their question, why are you crying? Because they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put Him. With inconsolable grief, she turns around and she sees the One for whom she's been weeping. Jesus Christ, alive in the flesh. But she can't recognize Him. She doesn't know Him from Adam, ironically. Isn't it funny, Christians, how often we cry out to God asking where He is, not recognizing that He's been standing right next to us the entire time, only waiting for us to look His way. We go looking for comfort in our grief and consolation and our sorrow, only discover that He was the One who sought and found us out first so that He could bring relief and joy into our lives. Why are you crying? Jesus repeats their question. Who is it that you're seeking? She looks Him in the face. And this is such an interesting detail. She looks Him in the face and supposes that He is the gardener. Gardener. Isn't that a strange detail? We might think at first blush that she's wrong in this assumption, but I think Mary is more right than she knows. More right than we know. See, after all, the one who stands before her and she doesn't recognize is the one who knelt mere hours ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, submitting His will not to Himself, but to the Father. His body, not for for His pleasure, but submits His body to death for our sin. That one who knelt in the garden, he's the same as the one who walked in the garden of Eden with man and woman having created paradise for them to rule alongside of him. And now this Jesus, the one who hung from a cross in order to make it a new tree of life from which we can eat, he is indeed the gardener. Because in Jesus, we see that He is fully Adam and yet fully God. God has made these two one in Him. And He's making a whole new world for us. A new Garden of Eden through His resurrection. But Mary is is so like us. She's so used to bad news. She's so weary from the curse of sin that she, like us, can't see Him for who He is fully. In a sweet and almost pitiful voice, she whimpers out, Sir, if you've carried Him away, just tell me where you've put Him and I will go and take Him away. Jesus responds to Mary with just one word. Her own name. He says to her, Mary. And just like that, she recognizes Him. She whips around and starts drying her eyes in shock as she sees 
Jesus is before her. And she cries out in her own heart language, in Aramaic, Rabbi, teacher. Only when she hears her name, when God addresses her, does she recognize there stands the gardener who is her teacher. There stands the gardener who is her king and has been with her all along. The one who made her. The one who became incarnate for her. The one that ministered to her when no one else would touch her. The one who forgave her. The one who suffered for her. The one that died for her. The one that harrowed hell for her. And the one that is now raised to eternal life for her. This same Jesus, folks, this same Jesus, fully man and yet fully God, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and yet rose from the dead and lives again today, who lives truly, historically, actually, bodily, this Jesus is likewise calling your name today too. Today on Easter Sunday, you can pin all your hopes on Him. You can cast all your cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This crucified gardener and resurrected King. Whom shall you fear, Maranatha? Who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He has stripped away sin's power on the cross. He descended into the realm of the dead to announce His victory over it. And God has raised Him from the tomb, alive forevermore, so that His compassion and grace and mercy and love could welcome you. Even you, with all your failures, all your sadness, all your disease, all your poverty, all your doubt, all your sin, all of you, not as you project yourself on Sunday morning, but as you wake up in the, the dead of Monday morning, agonizing over another terrible week ahead, that is when Jesus calls you by name. Come to Him now. Come to Him. Through Him, God's never-ending life and love awaits you even now. As Mary embraces Him, she is holding on to dear life. She doesn't want to be wanted to be like last time where He goes missing from her. But He says to her, I don't think in a harsh or condescending or scolding way, don't cling to Me. I don't think He's saying it in a way that we so often read it. I think He's saying it almost with a smile, with a chuckle. There's no need to cling, Mary. You'll never lose Me again. In fact, He's sending her away and life and joy and resurrection to be the first preacher of His being raised from the tomb. He sends her to be an apostle to the apostles. Go, Jesus says. You have a very special message to tell them. I'm soon ascending to the Father. 
My work is done for you. Go and tell John. Go and tell Peter, too slow to get here in a timely fashion. Go and tell them that I'm soon going to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. See, don't miss this, church. Don't miss what this resurrection means. How it changes everything. His Father is now your Father. His God is now your God. And His resurrection is now your resurrection. This is the ultimate joy of Easter. Through Jesus, a new kind of world is dawning. A world where humanity, through Him and Him alone, is reconciled back to God. A world where death finally doesn't have the final word in our lives. Jesus does. And He says, Behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and hell. And I'm locking it away forever. Come, be with me. He's creating a world where sin has met its end and His kingdom is finally coming at last. And the only thing we have to do is not to impress God, not to try to ascend up to Him, but to go and share this message of joy with anyone who will hear it. We can go with Mary Magdalene. We may not fully understand. We don't have all the answers. We may not fully comprehend. But we go out, even this morning, assuring one another that whatever burdens we face, whatever troubles approach, that we have seen the risen Lord Jesus. And He has called us out by name. Our King has ascended to glory. And we read that He's preparing a new garden for us, we spoiled the first one, but we'll never be able to tarnish the second. A new heaven and earth awaits us. A kingdom where God will be our God. And we will be His people, both now and forever. So what else can we say, Maranatha? How else can we bear witness than to testify to this? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And let us pray. Father, we like the disciples, we see, but we don't understand. We hear, but we don't recognize. So call out our names by Your Spirit through Your Son, our resurrected Lord Jesus. So that even we might know and believe. It's in His most holy and precious name who's risen again for us that we pray this morning. Amen and Amen.